Hey friends, welcome to another teaching episode on our podcast as we continue our series on the letter to the Philippians, uh, Jason here. And before we get to that, I just want to make sure that uh, you've been able to see a couple of other things going on. Uh, if you're on the email newsletter or if you're on social media, hopefully you've already seen these. Uh, but two things that we'd love for you to be aware of. First of all, we released a resource list for a church that wants to fight for black lives. And every Sunday morning, we're going live on social media uh, to learn from um, black members of our community who are reflecting on those resources. And so uh, this week, uh, the same day that this podcast is coming out, you can catch Robert Hyde, a member of our community, who's going to be talking with me and with all of us about a book called White Fragility by Robin D'Angelo. And you can catch that live at 9.30 a.m. on Instagram and 10 a.m. Facebook. Those times are Eastern time. Uh, but if you miss it when it goes live, you can always watch those after the fact. And so either way, we'd love for you to take advantage of that. Um, I know for me, these conversations have been incredibly uh, insightful and they've been opening my eyes and helping me understand uh, so much more about what it is that we are facing and working on as we consider um, the ways that uh, this world that we have built is just deeply unjust for our black sisters and brothers. So be sure to check those out. Uh, we'd love for you to join us there. And then the other thing is, for the first time since COVID, we have a church gathering coming up. Uh, so excited about this. This is this Wednesday, July 1st at 6.30 p.m. We're going right across the railroad tracks from Studebaker, not far from our regular home. And we're going to Four Winds Field, the home of the South Bend Cubs. And we are uh, taking over the stadium and we're going to use uh, the stands there so that you and your family, if you come with others, you can sit uh, in, in the seats and then you can keep six feet between you and other parties that are coming. But we're going to have church uh, right there at South Bend, uh, at Four Winds Field with the South Bend Cubs. So we'd love to see you there. Uh, gates open at six. The gathering is at 630. Uh, don't miss that. Um, it'll be the first time that we've gathered since COVID, and it'll be the first time that we've been able to be all together as a whole church at one gathering uh, since really our very beginning, because uh, we've always had to have multiple gatherings or services to make room for everyone. So uh, I hope that we'll see you online with social media when we talk about the resources for a church that wants to fight for black lives on Instagram and Facebook. And I really hope that we will see you in person at Four Winds Field on Wednesday night, July 1st. Um, as always, if you want to keep up on things, the best thing to do is to sign up for our email newsletter. You can do that on our website. Just scroll down on the front page and you'll see a field there where you can sign up for the newsletter. Uh, we promise not to spam you, but just to send you stuff when we actually have information that matters. And then also you can follow us on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, we are SB City Church, um, both of those platforms. Uh, that being said, I hope that this Philippian series has been useful Um not just that hopefully these teachings are helpful, but I hope that it hasn't been encouragement to you to open the text for yourself and spend some time meditating on uh, the words of that text. Um, there's so much there to help us and encourage us and to set our minds on a certain course while we navigate all the things that are going on in our world right now. Um, as always, friends, we love you and we miss you and we hope we'll see you soon, uh, maybe at Four Winds Field. I was reading an old book a while ago, uh, an ancient Greek text, not the Bible. But the modern scholar of literature who wrote the introduction to the book, he made a point. And he said that we should get used to reading old books. And the reason he said that was that when you read old books, it gives you access to a perspective that isn't tainted by the biases that we all share in the world that we're living in right now. 
It's a way of sort of checking your current perspective against a more perennial perspective. And perhaps it's a way of tapping into the things that have always been most true and most human throughout all of our history, right? I thought that was a good point, and it makes me think about what it means to study a text like the letter to the Philippians that we're looking at right now in the Bible. This is a letter that was written 2,000 years ago, and yet 2,000 years later and through all of the last 2,000 years, you can find people and communities all around the world that have been energized and enlightened and empowered by the words on this page, or these pages. And uh, I don't know about you, but this has been a very disorienting season with um, everything going on in the year 2020. It's been a confusing season. It's been a season when it's been hard to find my footing from time to time. And one of the ways that I think you can find a footing when things are a little unsettled is to get a, a longer, broader view of who you are in the moment that you're living in. And I think a text like this can help us do that. So it's written 2,000 years ago, and yet, as we've already heard looking through the text, it's, uh, it's a letter about the longing of distance when we can't be together the way that we want to be. And it's a text about uh, joy in the midst of the worst kinds of circumstances. It's a text about laying down privilege for the sake of the other. And not just that it's a good idea to do that, but that when you lay down your privilege for the sake of the other, that you're actually harmonizing your life with God, because the text says that this is what it's like to be in the very nature of God. And it's a text uh, with a challenge in it. And today I wanna help us hear the challenge in it. Uh, this is an invitation to actually like employ our energies and our days in the pursuit of something. And I wanna see if we can hear that today. So I wanna pick up in uh, Philippians chapter three. And uh, this is um, right after Paul has just talked about how he has this really impressive resume. And it's the kind of stuff that looks really good to the ego. It's these attainments and achievements um, that in the world he lived in and with the Jewish identity he had, they looked really good, but he says, none of that matters. Uh, I'm, I'm, I'm about something else right now. So he's gone through that list and say, it doesn't matter. And then he says, this is what does matter. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I've already obtained all of this or have already arrived at my goal, but I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Uh, that's chapter three, verses 10 through 14. Now, I just wanna zone in on a couple of sentences here because they come across like a bit of a tongue twister. He says, uh, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Uh, other translations render it something like, uh, I am trying to grasp that which has grasped me or I'm trying to lay hold of that for which I have been laid hold, which is really confusing language, I get it. And when you get into one of those moments in scripture where the different threads, uh, rather than being woven, end up in a knot, and it feels a little confusing or you get a little lost in the language, there's a couple of moves that you can make there. And I think one move that we often make is it just seems like maybe the writer is confused or we try to figure out what information we're supposed to get out of this strange equation of language. And that can go awry in a really unfortunate way. And I think the reason that happens is it's tempting to come to this text like its, it's mission is to transmit information to you and me. 
But the problem with that is that when our tradition has been at its best throughout history, we've always spoken of this text as not just something that's here to transmit information, but we've spoken of it as something like a sacrament, like something that's meant to mediate an experience to us. It's actually meant to draw us into the experience it's describing and not just transmit some data to you and me. Uh, this is the case when we talk about sacraments, right? Like when we talk about Eucharist, that sacred meal of bread and cup, this is not just for us some information on a table, right? Rather, it's, it's meant to be a place where we meet God in the experience of Jesus and his disciples in the upper room, and we meet God in the experience of God giving God's self to us at the sacred table. Uh, a sacrament doesn't just transmit information, it draws us into an experience. And if that's the case, when Paul gets into this strange little tongue twister about taking hold of the thing which has taken hold of him, we could ask ourselves, rather than like, what information are we trying to get out of that, we could ask, what kind of experience is Paul living inside of? And is this text inviting us inside that same experience? And when I think about this strange little cluster of words, this little knot that's been tied through text, of trying to take hold of that which has taken hold of me, or you trying to take hold of that which has taken hold of you, and I ask myself, what kind of experience would you describe with such uh, perhaps strange uh, twisted language? And the more this week that I meditated on what Paul is describing, and I asked myself, is there an experience I've had that when I'm inside it, I might use language like that? I realized there's one very clear experience that when I'm inside it, I would probably use language like this to describe it. And the experience is love. Now, here's what I mean by that. I, I don't mean first like when you feel love for somebody else. I mean first when you realize that you are loved and you open yourself in some way to that belovedness. Now, I'm not just talking about the narrow parameters of romantic love, although that's certainly included, but I'm talking about love wherever and whenever you find it. But when you realize that you are loved, when a friend or a family member or a, a romantic partner or like somebody lets you know that you are loved and they, they, they give that love to you and, and you decide that you might want to open your heart to it a little bit. Uh, I think a way of like experiencing that is like, this thing has taken hold of me. I didn't ask for it. I didn't force it. I didn't manufacture it. I didn't make it happen. It was given to me and it's got its grip on me. But now having opened my heart to it, I want to pursue it. I want to go after it. I want to go after him or her. I want to, I want to pursue the thing that has a hold of me. I want to take hold of the thing that has a hold of me. And I think that makes sense of the way that Paul talks about this strange experience that he has had in Christ. Uh, for him, of course, it was on the Damascus Road when though he'd been persecuting the church and really attacking the very life of God in the world, God meets him on the road and lets him know that he's been attacking God. But rather than condemning Paul, he calls Paul into the very same work. Uh, love seems to have met him in that moment so profoundly and so deeply and so convincingly that he spends the rest of his life trying to build the kind of community that would reflect that belovedness for everyone, for Jew, for Gentile, for slave, for free, that belovedness that draws all of us toward one another and all of us toward God. So Paul's had this profound experience. It makes him say things like, I'm convinced that nothing can separate us from the love of God, neither height nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor fears about the past, nor worries about today or tomorrow or anything on heaven or earth or under the earth, like nothing can get in the way of this love. He talks about uh, praying that we would know the height and the depth and the length and the width of this love, that it's beyond comprehension, but that somehow we would know it to the point that it empowers us to welcome the impossible work of God in the world. 
He talks about this love over and over again, and here he describes being taken hold of by something and then wanting to take hold of it. Like he wants to um, not just open himself to it, but he wants to chase after the reality of God and the possibility of love that God has brought into his life. Uh, I think this is a good word uh, for us, and it's going to take us into one of our community mantras that it might be good to refresh right now. So he, he talks about pursuing this goal, but, but if you remember, he also said, I have not attained this goal. I have not gotten my hands on it all the way. Now, when Paul says that I've not attained the goal, he's actually bringing in a word that's used in ancient Greek mystery cults. So at the same time that Paul's writing to the church, there are mystery cults, these sort of secretive, uh, ritualized communities that have very, very strict hierarchies. And in these mystery cults, it was believed that the, the people on top of the hierarchy in the cult have attained a certain kind of perfection. They've gotten their hands on this kind of perfection. And so Paul brings this image in that probably would have been familiar to his readers or to his hearers, that yeah, there are these, these um, spiritual religious communities that have hierarchies and the people on top are thought to have attained perfection. But he says, no, I, I haven't gotten to perfection. In fact, it's like uh, over and over again, Paul is saying, like, we need to abandon the expectation that we have arrived at perfection. And instead, we're just going to get our hands on the pursuit. And when he talks about um, letting go of perfection, but holding to the pursuit, I can't help but think of one of our mantras. And instead of using the language of perfection and pursuit, we could use the language of performance and practice. And if you've been around our community for a little bit, you might know that we have a mantra, which is practices, not performances. And we mean for that mantra to shape our life together as a church. And we mean for it to shape every minute of every day in the way that we move through this world and the way that we move toward God. And so um, Paul has talked about joy and he's talked about gospel and he's talked about Christ and he's talked about suffering and he's talked about laying down our privilege. And now he says, um, speaking as someone who has had love take hold of him, he says, all I care about now is giving my time, my energies and my efforts to pursuing this love that has taken hold of me, to pursuing God who has welcomed me. And that desire, that energy is the thing that we are trying to shape with our mantra practices, not performances. So we preach this from time to time, but it seems like it might be a really good moment uh, to renew this for our community. When we say not performances, we're celebrating the fact that because we are held in the love of God, we've got nothing to prove because love doesn't ask you to prove anything before love gives itself to you. So you've got nothing to prove. And when we talk about not performances, we mean that failure isn't fatal because maybe in a performance it is, but not in practice. And when we talk about it being not performative, whether it's your life or our, our life as a church together, uh, we mean everyone can play. Every single person is welcome to get off the sidelines and into the game because it's practice, not performance. And I will say, while we're going to be vigilant about the way that a performance culture can always creep into church, I think we're doing pretty good on the not performance part of this mantra. Like to the extent that I know uh, our church family and how we're doing as we work out these big and beautiful ideas, uh, I get the feeling that we're pretty good at the not performance part of this mantra. The part I suspect we might want to press further into is practice like actually intentionally choosing uh, behaviors and rhythms that aren't meant to prove anything to anyone, but that actually take us uh, further toward the thing that has already gotten a hold of us. Um, decisions and behaviors and habits and patterns that we can bring into our daily lives uh, 
that will continue to open us up to the movement of love uh, in our lives and the world around us. Uh, not performances is great. It's liberating to know that you've got nothing to prove uh, in the midst of this community or in the love of God. Um, but if that's as far as we go, we are selling ourselves short of the kind of life that Paul's describing when he says, I've considered everything else waste, forget about the ego, forget about the performance, but I wanna pursue this love that is pursuing me. I wanna pursue this God who has welcomed me. Now, um, we've had some opportunities for practice uh, even now in the life of our church. We've had um, this Philippians text, for example, and one of the reasons we've been doing Philippians for week after week is especially during COVID, we thought, and what if we could just, um, focus our thoughts on a, a short sort of simple text that's just a few chapters that we could come to again and again and again and that through a repeated and meditative encounter we might actually find some things opening up within us you know it's not just reading it once for the information but it's meditating not on it for the for the practice of being shaped by these words like like what would happen if if you spent like a month and every day you just meditated on that Philippians to him for a little while, that Christ being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but rather than cling to his own advantage or privilege, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a human, becoming a servant and dying a criminal's death on a cross. Like what if we, what if we return to that meditation day after day after day after day? I suspect that we might discover that whereas at the beginning of that practice, uh, there is some some nervous grasping or clinging to privilege that we are fighting in our own lives, but that over time, little by little, that grip loosens. We find ourselves able to let go of some of the things that we were clinging to for the sake of the other or our neighbor. That, that might actually happen if we meditated on that text again and again and again. And you, then you wouldn't be left wondering why, um, why you didn't make any progress because maybe you read it once and it just didn't do anything, right? Practice doesn't really work that way. Uh, so we have the text. And uh, if we're gonna like take Paul's words seriously here, I would say practice with it. Uh, make it part of your meditation. Allow it to take up some of the real estate in your mind uh, where perhaps there are other scripts that are running that haven't been really helpful for you or for the world. So we have the text. Um, a bunch of us took advantage of the Living Centered program that was put online by Onsite that uh, some of our donors to our care fund made accessible for a bunch of us who wanted to do that at a discounted rate. And I know um, a lot of us who jumped into it did not do it perfectly. Good news, that's not the point. Uh, maybe we fell off the horse and got back on. Maybe it took us longer than we thought. Um, but what a gift to just like turn our attention every day for a little while to some emotional wholeness and wellness uh, so that we don't just let our lives get run through the day by the agendas that are pushed on us and the needs that are clamoring around us, but we, we turn our attention to our own belovedness and to the fact that our lives are, are venues to meet the God who loves us and wants to be well and whole. Uh, so we've had the Online Living Center program. And then another real opportunity for practice that we've had as a church right now is the list that we released of resources for a church that wants to fight for black lives. Um, hopefully you've seen that. Uh, there's books and documentaries and podcasts and even local context around uh, the nature of racial injustice right here in South Bend, both in our history and in the current moment. And uh, another great example of like, uh, we, we don't need to be performative about our concerns about racial justice, but we need to get in the game and actually act, right? 
And I think um, perhaps around the conversation of racial justice is a place where the practices, not performances mantra would be really helpful for a lot of us right now. Uh, maybe you feel like you're a rookie in this conversation or you're uncomfortable in this conversation, or uh, maybe it seems like there's a lot of rules for how to go about this conversation because there's a lot of advice being given right now about the right way to enter into it. And uh, maybe that has left you just sort of afraid to enter in. But um, let me revise something I said a few minutes ago here about the mantra practices, not performances. I said uh, that in, in practices, failure isn't fatal. But that's not quite right. In my experience, as far as I can tell, in, in a practice mindset, there is one failure that's fatal. There's only one. This is the only way that you can screw up practice. The only failure that is fatal when it comes to practice is the failure to show up in the first place. Right, like I mean, if you come to the field or you go to the practice room and you get into the practice, I would say once you get into the practice, there's no failure that's fatal. But if you fail to show up for practice, that is the failure that's fatal. You won't get anywhere. And I fear that some of us, because the conversation around race seems tense or energized or uncomfortable or we don't know our bearings within it, like we're, we're tempted to just stay out of it. But that would be the one failure that's fatal and it's gonna keep us stuck and it's, we're not going to help the world get unstuck around these issues of racial justice. Uh, the only failure that's fatal when it comes to practice is the failure to show up. Now, um, when COVID hit, I, I was wrestling with how I was going to deal with some of the boredom and the re repetition of day after day being stuck at home. And I decided I was either going to get a puppy, which I didn't do, or I was going to rent a cello. Now, uh, I played music like my whole life and I love music, but I've never played the cello. At the same time, for years, I have been in love with cello. I, like, I can't get enough of it. Uh, there are some who uh, describe, there's a word in music, which is timbre, which is spelled timber, sort of, but it's timbre, trust me, T-I-M-B-R-E. Timbre describes the, the sort of, the sound of an instrument, the tonal color or character of an instrument. And many have argued that the cello's timbre is closer to the human voice than any other instrument, which is, I think, part of what makes it so beautiful and why a cello can sound mournful or joyful and it just like gets you in the gut and in the heart, right? So I thought, you know what? I got time on my hands and I would like something like a new COVID hobby. So I rented a cello. And it took uh, several weeks between when I rented the cello and when it showed up. And in the several weeks between when I rented it and it showed up, I just went deep into the internet watching videos of great cello performances. And I found cellists I'd never heard of before and I would watch them perform uh, these gorgeous pieces of music. Um, and I would just get so worked up watching these performances and feeling the beauty and the power of them. And so I got more and more and more and more inspired the more that I watched these beautiful performances on the cello. And then my cello arrived and you're gonna know how this goes, right? Now, I'd watched some tutorials as well, and I've been around stringed instruments because I was a music ed major for a moment, but the cello arrives and I sit down to play it. And at first, like just taking the bow on the string and finding a little bit of that tone that I love was incredibly exhilarating. And then I tried to play a scale and it sucked. <laughs> and I would do my 15 or 20 minutes of practice at a time for a little while. But if I'm being honest, I got defeated really quickly because of the gap between the performances that had inspired me so much that I had tuned into on the internet. The gap between those performances that had inspired me and my practice was, was so defeating 
even though the point of those performances was to inspire me. I was watching them to get kind of worked up for what I could do with this instrument that had just uh, come into my life. And so if I'm being honest, for like the last two months, that cello has sat in my basement untouched. Sometimes I'll look at the cello sitting over there in the corner and I'll remind myself, Jay, the only failure that's fatal when it comes to practice is the failure to show up, right? And uh, what I know for a fact is if I would have kept up that 15 or 20 minutes at a time on that instrument, I would not be a master cellist today, but I'd probably find some really beautiful and satisfying and meaningful moments with that bow and those strings. And I haven't gotten there yet because I haven't shown up. I suspect a lot of us um, are opting out of practice because perhaps we've been defeated by the examples that are meant to inspire us. And by examples, I mean whether it's the most enlightened voices on race and racial justice, the people who are really getting after it, or whether we talk about Jesus and the example of being human that we see in him and the generosity and the love and the humility and the power of his life. And we look at our own lives and the example that's meant to inspire us is in some ways defeating us because we've forgotten um, that it's not about whether you can get there today, but if we don't start pursuing, if we don't try to lay hold of the gift that's been given to us, uh, we're never gonna get anywhere. Sometimes the examples that are meant to inspire us defeat us and we stop showing up to practice, but I hope maybe like the takeaway from Paul today is like, like get back in the game. Like let everything else that doesn't matter, let all the pursuits of the ego be left on the sidelines, but let's get back in the game uh, for the people that we are meant to become, for the love that we are meant to receive and give, for the life of God in our midst, uh, and for the justice that we are here to enact in the world. It might be messy, we might stumble and fall again and again, but we need to get back into the game, back into the practice. Because the alternative is that we look over the corner of the room and we see the instrument upon which we were meant to be making some really beautiful music and we find out that we're not. Uh, and we're simply here for more than that. Uh, whenever I preach practices, not performances, I usually tell the story of my friend Cuthbert. So you might remember this if you've heard uh, me preach the mantra. Um, but it's also on my mind as, as we speak of the practiced pursuit that Paul is talking about, to lay hold of the things that matter most. Uh, I met Cuthbert when I was in grad school. Cuthbert and I were uh, in a few classes together. And I first noticed Cuthbert because the professor who taught the first class that we shared uh, would have different students read from the text that we were studying out loud. And the day he called on Cuthbert, the whole room like turned their heads because Cuthbert uh, is from Ireland. He's a Benedictine monk and he's got this deep sonorous voice. I usually joke and call him like a white James Earl Jones. So listening to him read the scriptures was just like being transported somehow. And I thought, I really want to get to know this guy. I don't know what it's like to be uh, a monk. Um, I love Irish culture. Like, it'd just be really fun to get to be friends with this guy. And long story short, we ended up being able to do that. And so one day we're sitting at Fiddler's Hearth downtown, sharing pints of Guinness. And I'm asking him questions about being a monk. And I'm curious about the ways that they show up for prayer at fixed hours of the day and the way that they've ordered their life. And I think Cuthbert can tell that the example uh, that I see in him, that it's, it's running the risk of not inspiring me, but defeating me, because I'm putting him on a kind of pedestal. And he interrupts me at some point and he says, hey, Jay, you need to know that the reason I became a monk is not because I'm so good at the practice of prayer. He said, the reason I became a monk 
is my heart longs to pray, but I don't know how to do it without a community. My heart longs to pray like perhaps enough of him knows that his life has been taken a hold of by the love of God and he wants to take hold of that love. He wants to live inside that tongue twister that Paul describes. He wants to grasp the thing that has grasped him. He wants to pursue the love that has pursued him. And yet it's really hard sometimes and we falter and we fall in the practice life. And he reminded me that like we weren't meant to practice alone. And so Paul's here running a race uh, he's straining toward the finish line. You and I are running our own races. And I'm not talking about the rat race or the race to impress. I'm talking about the pursuit of knowing the love that loves us and building the, the, the world of belovedness that we are here to build. Um, I don't think we can practice this alone. I think we have to practice it together. This is especially bittersweet during COVID because we haven't been able to be together in the ways that we want to be. But uh, as the situation of COVID drags on and on, uh, like, I want to encourage you, like, let's not give up on finding ways to practice with one another. Uh, I had a buddy who joined me for some encouragement and some accountability on the Living Center program so that we could share some of the experiences that we had within it. And having a friend to do it with is infinitely better than doing it alone. When it comes to the conversation on race and trying to understand and get better and do better than we have done so far, uh, I have learned I can't do it alone. I have to have conversation partners. I have to be able to, um, to work this out with other people in my life, white and black, to learn from and to wrestle together with how we're gonna make things better because we can't do it on our own. And frankly, like I'm not good at praying on my own either. I'm better at praying when I'm in a room full of other people who have lent their love and their energy to the same pursuit. And so um, if practice has been especially hard during COVID, I get it. It has been for me too. Uh, in the meantime, let's keep finding ways to practice together, like fire up those Zoom calls. I know you're tired of them, I am too. Fire up the Zoom calls, get on the phone, go on a walk, join a friend in the backyard. Uh, but let, like, let's keep finding ways to run this race and to practice this pursuit together. Um, Paul is convinced that God has given God's self to us in love, whether we earned it or not, whether we could prove ourselves or not. And that the gift of God giving God's self to us transforms every trial, every moment of suffering, every difficulty into a place where in spite of the trials and the sufferings and the difficulty, joy can be found. And Paul is convinced that because God has given God's self to the world, that a new way of being human is together. And he calls it the church. And it's the place where Jew and Gentile and slave and free and men and women and the rich and the poor all belong to one another. And uh, I don't want to give up on that. I want to keep pursuing it. And I think you do too. So, uh, may you pursue the love that has pursued you. May you grasp for the love that has grasped you. May you run after the God who has run towards you, knowing you have nothing to prove, but that nothing else matters uh, alongside this gift that we have been given. May we practice uh, our faith and our love in the face of our personal trials. And may we practice our faith and our love in the face of a world of injustice. And may we trust that as we run forward, God meets us on the road and runs with us. And may grace and peace be with you.